the year 2020, I started a podcast about movies. Some episodes occasionally focused on other media as well. As I dealt with threatening interdimensional beings, I eventually met my other self from another universe where all the stuff I talked about got delayed. As it turns out, the stories as me and my guests described them were presented very differently in that other universe. So I continued podcasting these recaps, which apparently sound like improvised reviews, to entertain listeners of that other universe while they waited for the new release dates. Some episodes even focused on content of years past that did not come out in that other universe for whatever reason. The year is 2022. The podcast is now bi-weekly, unless stated otherwise. My name is Steven Schinder, and you're listening to Delayed Replay. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Delayed Replay, that podcast where we usually talk about movies that got delayed in that other universe but came out on time in our universe. But occasionally, like on this episode, we talk about movies that came out in our universe but not in that other universe, apparently. I'm your host, Steven Schinder, and joining me once again uh, to talk about another Men in Black related thing and it's very fitting because this episode comes out july 2nd the 25th anniversary of the 1997 film it is jesse bennett from question possible answer what's up my dude hey how's it going uh thanks for having me back again so soon steven uh really looking forward to discussing another uh men in black based movie with you yeah it's very based I guess you could say. <laughs> Link that term in the show notes, I guess, for anyone who doesn't know what based means. But anyway, so uh, yeah, this one we're talking about now is actually the prequel that came out in like 2008. And it's titled Men in Black Declassified. And I guess in our universe, this is what sort of started a trend of like more prequels coming out like i know we got the star wars prequels before this but then in like the late 2000s we got like x-men origins wolverine and then we also got the star trek reboot that year even though it's a new timeline people still like it still deals with like younger looking versions of the characters and then a couple years later we got x-men first class the thing prequel prometheus so i guess filmmakers were like hearing that this was in development and thinking huh this sounds like a neat idea and sort of did all this other stuff what do you think of this decision that they made like going from frank the pug to doing this men in black declassified prequel so at first i was kind of worried that you know with it seems like with like a lot of franchises if something gets successful they'll overdo it and run it into the ground so i was kind of worried that that was going to be happening with this and i was glad to be proven wrong i was um 13 or 14 when this was coming out and i remember at the time i thought the title was funny because it reminded me of the nickelodeon show ned's declassified school survival guide but yeah when i eventually saw it i was like huh it's interesting like that this came out around these 
other prequels and like thankfully it wasn't x-men origins wolverine quality but uh, i guess we'll get into uh some of those plot points in just a bit but yeah it, it kind of hits some of the beats that some prequels do in the beginning which is like star with a summary of like historical things like like it begins with this montage of like alien related earth history events like there's like a little scene of people listening to that war of the worlds uh radio thing in like the 30s and being scared or whatever and then there's like a skip to like the roswell incident and then we get to like the 1950s when men the men in black is actually being founded while the space race is going on so what did you think of this opening montage i loved it just so like you said you know they start with like the war of the world's radio thing and i wasn't expecting them to include something like that i was expecting roswell for sure but i wasn't expecting the radio show and it seemed like it played a much higher part in the movie than i was expecting it to be i was thinking it was just going to be a subtle nod and yeah um i really loved the intro and everything it seemed a little bit different than how the other mib movies come into it and i loved it for that yeah it kind of sets the tone agent k's story goes through uh different years and so i guess it sort of prepared us for like how this story isn't just going to be contained to just one uh, year or one week or whatever like we're used to with like the other Men in Black movies before this one. So I quite liked the pace of this and you know they do the like cutesy thing of having the War of the Worlds thing being like black and white to sort of emulate the whole old timey sci-fi movie thing and then once it gets to like with Roswell they kind of make it look a bit better like it kind of goes from like wizard of oz black and white to universal monster movies black and white it, i that i don't know if it felt like that to you but that's kind of the comparisons that i was getting and then i got to like the 1950s and sort of like was finally um in color and kind of looked like back to the future to me because of course like that movie was in the 50s so that's my main frame of reference i guess you could say so with the black and white stuff, I at first I was wondering, you know, why are they doing this in black and white? And then as it slowly progresses, like, oh, they're, you know, this part of the story was in that time frame. So they want to try to maintain some sense of realism in this extraterrestrial movie. And it slowly progresses to color. And I thought it was an amazing decision uh, on their part. It's like a fun homage thing they didn't go too overboard with it when they're in the 50s like what'd you think of how they handled like the way that the men in black was being formed like the organization and uh how they're like talking about the space race and all that stuff it was interesting because you know it starts off with you've got this small group of government officials debating on the space race and you know we join the conversation as it's happening so we miss some of the important stuff that happens in the beginning of the conversation so it's kind of just starts off with the argument of why do we need an organization for this and then 
out of nowhere, you know, the guy throws down the paper and is like, because of this, and it's images of Roswell and this and that, and basically really quickly, like, oh, yeah, we kind of forgot about that, which who knows how people could forget about Roswell. But it was really interesting and amazing to see that they're like, okay, yeah, so this is why we're doing it. And immediately the argument stops and everyone's on board like, yes, we need this. That's what editing is for, right? Like if you have these long discussions like with government officials, like realistically, it would take a really long time to watch all of it. And that could be like a whole boring movie in and of itself. So like, it makes sense that they would edit it this way. And I like that they brought back the whole Roswell thing, like, right away. And, yeah, it is kind of funny how people, like, kind of forgot about that. But that's, like, the Men in Black franchise in general, right? People just forgetting things. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I don't know if they had planned on going that way from the beginning. But, you know, the Neuralizer was basically, the technology was brought with Roswell and I, I don't know I just the the whole concept of you know they tie everything in a nice pretty ribbon without really leaving any loose ends to the grand franchise at least in these early scenes which was amazing yeah for sure and so we get like this whole montage of like you know they get their headquarters and it's kind of run down doesn't look very great and it's like kind of funny like thinking of the contrast of how it looks pretty basic here and we know that eventually it's going to be like a much bigger and more like better looking headquarters like what would you think of the overall look of this i i liked it uh mainly because you know you don't expect a new facility to be well, I guess you do expect a new facility to be perfect, but whenever they don't have quite the funding, it makes sense for them to be starting from the bottom and kind of climbing the tiers to where they get to where we see in like Men in Black 1 and Men in Black 2. And so it was really nice to see, well, of course it's not going to be perfect. We haven't, we don't have the licenses that are going to return a profit for us to make our upgrades yet. The actors that they got for this scene were quite good i think uh like what were like some of the performances that stood out to you the main one that really stood out was uh jim parsons being like one of the head government officials yeah and it, it was just amazing that you know to see someone of that caliber in a role that was he was I don't even know what his role was. I just know he was a government official. And it, for those that don't know, Jim Parsons is you know, Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. And it was nice to see him be in a role that wasn't Sheldon Cooper. The way that he brought uh, his emotions to that role, even though it, it's hard to explain. But, I mean, yeah, Jim Parsons being in that role was amazing. And I don't think they could have found anyone better for the government official. Yeah, because in the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon would get on my nerves, but here he dials some of that back, but still feels very authoritative, like he's a man in charge, a man in a leadership position. And it was a different performance. I would even go as far as to say it's one of his best, if not his best. 
another role of his uh, I kind of like is in that Muppets movie during that song Muppet of a Man. <laughs> um, I don't think I've seen that Muppets movie. Yeah, it's the one with Jason Siegel and Amy Adams. I think that came out in like 2011 or something. Mm, but, okay. Yeah, it's I, I liked it, but apparently Frank Oz didn't like it or the office like tv show that came later which is funny because i liked those movies and that tv show but i don't know maybe sometimes i just like the things that kind of go against the grain of what their franchise is which is why i love scooby-doo mystery incorporated or the looney tunes show from like the early 2010s but anyway this movie i I guess that kind of relates how like men in black declassified does go against the grain like not in a frank the pug sort of way where it just focuses on the mascot but in a way where it's like you know showing us these different time periods and these characters we're not so used to until uh agent k comes into the picture like it really you know it like it's kind of a shock to the system at first but it's a good shock if that makes any sense like you're just kind of thrown in and it's like okay let's redefine what the men in black world is from this point on uh does that make sense yeah it does just yeah. like i you know like you were saying you know the, the going against the grain but not really you know because like with frank the pug we see you know we see what was it? it was like the 60s and all of this and it was kind of all over the place against the grain whereas this one was more contained linear progression and i i just thought that was amazing yeah like it's not a quentin tarantino movie where it goes all out of order they progress through the 50s and we every now and then it cuts to like the footage of like news coverage of stuff like Sputnik and all these other things and uh we get like some music set to this montage where they're continuously like working in the headquarters and they keep on renovating and making it look better and got some like Elvis Presley music in the background kind of to remind us of like where we are but yeah like I don't know like how much Elvis, you're familiar with, but what did you think of that music choice here? So, I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with Elvis as an artist and everything, but I'm not, I never really listened to any of his music. I was born really late 80s, might as well have been 90s. So, I, I've listened to some older music, but I never really listened to Elvis. I'm aware of his contributions to the music industry and everything, but it was just never. I guess my cup of tea, I guess you could say. Right. I'm pretty much only familiar with what I've heard in the Lilo and Stitch franchise. I guess a little bit of Forrest Gump, there was like a bit of him in that as well. And that's pretty much the extent of my Elvis knowledge. But even being unfamiliar with his catalog, it did sound to my ears that they weren't just playing one song. They were skipping through like it was kind of like you have these songs on a compilation and you put it on the like the player and it's like skipping 
to a, a different track after it's like midway through one of them. So it, it was kind of annoying to me how noticeable it was. But I, I thought Elvis was a fine choice for this montage, even if I'm not that super tuned in to him as like, um, like since I'm not so familiar with his catalog, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an Elvis fan, but I am familiar with his, like, like, I do like what I've heard from him, and I like how, like, I do acknowledge that he was so influential on, like, many other artists, like the Beatles included, and they influenced some of my favorite artists, so. Um, and something I just now kind of realized, thinking about it now, is, like, of course they choose Elvis, because, you know, there's always been the fan theories out there that Elvis was an alien, and then, and the first Men in Black movie, uh, you know, they're like, don't you know Elvis is dead? He's like, no, he just went home. So, of course, they're going to include this artist who is rumored to be an alien. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> so, it progresses to March of 1961. And here we have, like, we have the introduction of Kevin Brown, you know, the future Agent K himself. And... Of course, he's played by Josh Berlin, whom they later get back for Men in Black 3. And you can tell that they tried making him look younger than he actually was, but I'm not sure how effective it was. But I don't know. What did you think of the makeup that they used for him? I enjoyed it. I mean, this was one of the earlier attempts that movies had made at de-aging. So, of course, it's not going to be perfect at all. And so, like, you know, you can kind of see the makeup lines on the neck where they try to blend everything. But at the same time, they weren't trying to de-age him 50 years or anything like that. I want to say they only had to de-age maybe 15 years or something like that. And I could be wrong on those estimates also. But... So overall, I thought they did pretty good. It didn't ruin the performance for me at all. Yeah, and I did wonder whether they tried a little bit of CGI to smooth things out. But if they did, they didn't go overboard like they do with some of these other things in this, like in some other prequel things, I guess. And, and the introduction was kind of different from what I expect from the character. It felt very American graffiti, like he's basically racing in his car with some buddies and it's like wow kevin it like future agent k is like actually really wild in his early 20s i wasn't expecting that because i mean throughout the rest of the series he's a very i guess stern would be the right term to use for how he is in the rest of the series and before he's an agent he is very carefree in what he does yeah, because by the time we see him, like the younger him in 1969, he does seem very stoic and by the books. But here he's like very, you know, this is the start of the 60s, or I guess the second year of the 60s. And he's very carefree and very full of joy and life and very passionate in like his relationship with the woman that he loves. And to the point where like, he'll like surprise her with this picnic and they'll have like a really lively discussion and he'll be like serenading to her. And it's like, whoa, this is not 
the agent KL's expecting. Yeah, and like, you know, just going off with that relationship and everything, it's like they don't really define, because in the movies, you know, in the first one at least, you know, there's the scene in that one where he's using the satellite to zoom in and basically look over this woman to make sure she's okay. And it's all kind of hinted that there was a relationship there. And the actress that they choose for to play his love interest in this one, they went out of their way to give her a bearing resemblance to this woman from the satellite scene in the earlier movie. Well, newer, you know, you know what I mean? It's an yeah. earlier movie, <laughs> but it's later in the timeline. <laughs> and so like, it was just kind of nice to see. It's like, Oh, well, are, are we finally going to get the story of what made him become, I guess, this agent-like person? And, I mean, we do get that eventually. But it was nice to, you know, see him sitting there with the picnic at night and they're stargazing and there's shooting stars or what we are led to believe are shooting stars. And I like that they got Elizabeth Winstead to play the love interest, who... Like, in this movie, they give her a name, and that name, which is so hard for me to take seriously now, is Martha. Like, for obvious reasons, it's hard for me to take it seriously. But, yeah, I do like how they made her look like she could eventually grow up to look like how uh, she looks in that one moment in the 97 Men in Black movie. With the shooting stars, like you mentioned... Like, obviously, they're, like, looking at it and making a wish or whatever and saying, like, some lovey-dovey stuff, like, I wish at this moment with you could last forever type of thing. The camera, like, zooms in on the shooting stars and shows that it's actually these, what we learn are the Balshans, like, these tall, gray aliens. They're sort of, like, crash landing somewhere. And so, like, at Men in Black headquarters, they really want to go and investigate this and it takes them some time to locate them and get to where they are which is why by the time that this whole thing happens it's like the next date uh, that kevin means to go on uh like delivering flowers and stuff like what do you think of how all this stuff goes down i thought it was amazing that they were able to maintain the continuity between the films and because you know like so we get he's driving down the road to take these flowers to his uh love interest girlfriend i don't know if they were engaged at this point or not i i think he may have no yeah he was going to propose that day i believe if i remember properly yeah and then we get, you know, it's, it was raining and, and like, of course, you know, we learned earlier in the movie that he likes to race his cars and he's driving kind of fast. It's the rain. So he kind of veers off the path. It's hits a wet spot and just kind of winds up in this environment surrounded by these three or four Balshans. And he just happens to be there whenever the government agency shows up but it's before they have the technology for the neuralizer. So instead of wiping his memory, they're like, well, let's just bring him in. You know, what's the worst that can happen? And they end up getting possibly one of, if not the best agent that the men in black has ever had. I quite like how 
the context that his arrival provides, like they depict the government officials here, like they kind of don't know what they're doing. They're sort of just grasping at straws uh, to the point where all their nervous actions when they like meet these aliens, like the these officials kind of look like they could be threatening. And so the Balshans get like really nervous. And so uh, things look like they're about to escalate. But with the arrival of Kevin with the flowers, it's very, you know, I guess flowers are kind of the universal symbol of uh, like, especially if there are some on the Balshans planet, like they recognize that this represents peace and life, like stuff that grows when there's nothing like no war affecting the ground or whatever no battles trampling on this life that came out of the soil and so i I really loved how this went down and the balshans don't look too bad the main one was actually played by doug jones who's known for doing like creature uh costume work so now what did you think of how the balshans looked here i thought it was great you can tell that they went back and looked at that scene and it wasn't a perfect reproduction in any means finally get to see it and they're a little bit taller than he saw but yeah overall i thought the costuming department did a really good job on creating these tall gray alien creatures yeah how they bring him in and sort of debrief him on like everything that's gone on and how they're like well you're part of this now we can't just let you go he's sort of just like still taking it in like he just met aliens like he's very like wide-eyed and just in awe and sort of like it's hard for him to focus when they're talking to him and like you really see the wonder in his eyes which again is a contrast from how I'm used to thinking of this character when we see him in like later in his life and he he's just like really excited to be part of this whole thing like meeting aliens and um he has like a very making pee sort of outlook here um which is funny when like later on he actually has to deal with uh more serious stuff and like stopping aliens who do bad things so like it's sort of like a realization a shock to the system here that like you know he has to make all these decisions and here he's also like he wants to like tell a martha about all this but he also has like a dilemma in that he's not allowed to tell anyone about this kind of interesting because you know And the other MIB movies, whenever they recruit a new agent, they give them the whole spiel of you will conform to the identity that we give you, et cetera, et cetera. And and this one, we don't get that because they're a fairly new organization and they're still ironing things out. How do we do this? It's like, he's like, yeah, I'll help you. He doesn't realize whenever he's like, I'll help you. He hasn't realized yet that he has to say goodbye to Martha and the whole life that he has known. And so it was interesting just to see how this character handles that for the first time. 
which also leads into why he takes such a keen interest in making sure that the new recruits that he goes and gets in the future, he lets them know, hey, it's worth it, but you have to say goodbye to everything that you know. He has this dilemma because of all this. Because after this, he has to go to Martha and she's like, I waited for you. What took you so long? And he's like, I, I had a reason of that I was late. Like, you just have to trust me on this. And you can tell that she's like really upset and can tell that he's hiding something. Oh, which is why uh, he brings out the ring and sort of tries to use that to cover his tracks and prevent more questions from being asked. But even with this engagement and what it leads to and all of it, it's just like, as the audience, you know that this can't last and it's going to be like very heartbreaking. Like they, they want to get married really fast, but we know that the relationship is not going to last that long because of the MIB mythology. Yeah, like he was kind of hoping that, or at least the way I saw it, which I could be wrong in the way that the directors and everything were wanting it, but it seemed like he was already going to propose and everything to Martha, but then being inducted into the MIB, he was thinking that, well, if I propose and we get married, maybe I can clue her in on this stuff and then I don't have to lose her. And unfortunately, that's not how they operate. Yeah, he kind of gets a scolding uh, at by the officials. They're like, no, you cannot, like, you have to cut all ties and you can't let her know about all this. It's too dangerous. And uh, he gets, like, really upset and uh, yells at, at the officials. And that's when we get, like, you know, super emotional uh, Agent K is just like, unhinged and going all out flipping tables it's just like this movie really is going out of its way to show a different agent k yeah and it it answers a lot of questions at the same time at least like questions that i had about like well how did they handle stuff like this happening because they never really touch on it they normally always just explain it with all the answers you're looking for are right here look in this little device Meanwhile, everyone's got sunglasses on, which I get it for a movie. That's a great way to, you know, cover your tracks and just explain it away. But then in this movie, they actually take the time and show you this is why we do it this way. Because of people like Agent K, who, yeah, he's a great agent. But before he was an agent, he was very similar to Jay in a sense of I'm doing things my way. You see that they're trying to work on a neural neuralizer type of device so we get like the early like the earliest known version of it like what do you think of how it looks here so i thought at first i was really confused by it because it looked nothing like a modern neuralizer right it actually looked more like the de-neuralizer where it was like okay we need you to come with us sit in this chair and, you know, just don't move. And then they eventually, uh, I don't remember which alien race it is that actually gave them te the technology for it. But eventually, you know, by the end of the movie, we have progressed to the version of the Neuralizer that we see in MIB3, where they have the battery pack and everything. 
So it's nice to see the evolution of the technology also, and not just the evolution of the organization and the characters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so he eventually has that confrontation with Martha. It's kind of when they're playing chess with each other. So I don't know if that was supposed to be like a metaphor or something, but maybe it was just something for them to do while they have this big moment. But he basically says that like, if anything ever happens, he'd miss her. And she gets like really concerned. But again, she like, like he can't tell her anything. But what happens is eventually like, what we hear in like later movies in, in the chronology, which is that the cover story is that like he's in a coma and like that's why, like it's basically why they're not together from like this point onward. And it's just really heartbreaking for him to the point where he just buries himself in his work as we see in like this montage that uh, keeps going like, a few more years into the 60s i think like they're not very clear on like when it is but it, it's it, it seems very clear that it's like at least a few years into the decade like he looks like he's aging quite a bit but yeah he's just like really buried in his work and more stoic like, like kind of more like the agent k that we know yeah and also, you know, with the traveling through the decade that they do and showing the progression, you know, it's really nice to see he starts off being lovey-dovey with this with this woman, Martha, and eventually a few scenes later, I guess a few years later, you know, they introduce uh, Agent O also, yeah. and he kind of gets that spark again to be like, oh, well, you know, you remind me of someone I used to know, and we get the whole expansion of their relationship at the same time. Yeah, and Agent O, of course, is played by Alice Eve, who would play her in MIB3. And what's kind of funny is, you know, I, I brought up the newer Star Trek movies earlier, but she would also go on to play a younger Carol Marcus in Star Trek Into Darkness. So it's kind of funny that she's been in not just one of these types of movies. Just a slight tangent, I thought she was a really great choice. And like Emma Thompson as well, like I can believe that they're the same person. Like she'd grow into her or she grew from her or whatever. And it's just really good casting all around. Probably one of the best uh, multi-castings for a character, for younger and older. Probably you know, like one of the most believable versions of this character grows into that character. Yeah, and Josh Berlin into Tommy Lee Jones as well. Like by the time he gets more stoic, it's like okay, yeah, this is a young Tommy Lee Jones. I can believe it. Yeah. So he does feel the spark again, like with Agent O. Like they have some. Like, you know, they'll do, like, normal work stuff and try to be very matter-of-fact, but it's clear that they're really into each other and maybe flirting without flirting, if that makes sense. Uh, but he also feels kind of guilty because it's like he's thinking Martha and I are a thing. I should be with her and not feeling these 
feelings, but he also like tries to rationalize like, well, if I'm technically dead, like does this count as being unfaithful? And he really has like an identity crisis here. Yeah, and they handled it very well, I think, because, I mean, you know, they never show any, like, actual flirting. It's always just hinted at in their conversation where you can see this mutual attraction, but because of the rules and regulations in place, they can't act on them. And then he also has this emotional connection still with Martha, so he also doesn't want to act on it there. So you can really see that, you know, it's... It's pulling at his heartstrings, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Yeah, like, in these moments, you get, like, really sad-sounding 60s music. It's just, like, it, it does sound kind of funny to me, but it can also tug at the heartstrings, no matter the song choice. Like, I think the what's going on in the story helps me take it more seriously, because it's, like, oh man, we saw this guy, like, over time, he's just been getting beaten down. It's kind of like how they've, how they tried handling um, Han Solo, like, later on in Han in Solo's Star Wars story, you know, he was more adventurous and more optimistic and kind of Luke Skywalker-like at the start, but then, like, over the course of that movie, he would um, become beaten down because of, like, all the stuff that happened with Kira and the heartbreak there so i, I kind of see like a similar trend in this movie like he's just agent k is processing all these different feelings that's really taking a toll on him yeah and then i i, I do like also uh since we're kind of still on the topic of agent o you know because they have to work together for a little bit. Well, they don't have to. They choose to for obvious reasons. Um, but we get to see, I guess you could say, this timeline's version of the events that take place in the future movie, MIB3. So we kind of get to see some small snippets of him going after... Um, I just forgot his name. Um, but the main villain from MIB3... You know, we get to see the original timeline version. So instead of J and K going to Florida and Cape Canaveral and all that, it's K and O going to handle this situation. And just all of those scenes also just help solidify that relationship that those two characters had together. Yeah, and it kind of makes Men in Black 3 feel more like Back to the Future Part 2, because we see some of those familiar scenes that revisit that stuff. And I, I really liked how, like, it built off of this movie. And, uh, again, like, Agent O and Agent K. Um, oh, wow, I just realized it's, like, O-K. <laughs> I don't know. If yeah, I was thinking of it the other way, where it was K-O, like, knockout. Oh, yeah. I can... <laughs> but, 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 so either way, it works. O-K or K-O, take your pick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like KO, like in Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or whatever it is from, <laughs> um, or just boxing in general. Like I know it's not just from video games, but yeah, like as they're doing all this stuff, like you can tell that they really are into each other and want to. Like, they sort of are together for a while, but then realize, you know what, this can't get in the way of our work type of thing. And so 
it's like it's really wild how like agent k has all these romances and like later like in the late 70s there's the lorena stuff and so it's like even though he's really we think of him as being really stoic and stern like he's i guess people find him like really attractive it's really funny i mean i i can see it though because i mean people do enjoy someone in a uniform of some sense and then he carries himself very well and he's learned very quickly how to communicate with these alien life forms so they're going to love him and some end up actually loving him yeah and it also helps that people at least from what i can tell really love josh brolin like just how he looks i guess (laughs) even when he's a purple alien maybe i don't know like in Avengers, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, was like, I was like, wait, was there a scene that I went to the bathroom on that he was, an a- but then I was like, oh yeah, yeah, Avengers. Yeah, Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I really like how they show how he handles all the alien stuff and sort of making these decisions of how to catch the ones that are doing bad things and how to help the ones that are just looking for a home and trying to find their place in this earth society i guess you could say um and just how the mib itself evolves and he evolves with it it's just like i didn't realize how necessary i i guess like in air quotes this movie ended up being like it's essential men in black viewing it's just so well done as a prequel Yeah, because it really shows us, you know, instead of because in the first ones we get to see, you know, headquarters where, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of aliens that live on Earth, but we never see how they decide which ones can stay and which ones are deemed a threat. But we get to see how all of that kind of comes to fruition in this movie, which was amazing that, you know, they have this little side interview room where, you know, they treat them with respect they try to feed him some food and just have a simple conversation while they decide well do we want you to stay on this planet or are we going to send you off to space again and find somewhere else yeah and just going through all these different bits of like soundtrack like going from elvis to the beatles and then i i think it was like when they got to the 70s it was like led zeppelin and just it's like wow this movie really goes through it it really covers a lot and has a lot packed into it but it somehow doesn't feel like too much to me like uh, it's kind of weird how that feels yeah i mean they did a great job you know because they always say you know oh most of them are in new york but in this one we see well if they're not in new york they're probably in Seattle. Right, yeah. <laughs> is, it's like, okay, yeah, so one coast versus the other, one's kind of, you know, very far, like, straight to the east, and then you've got one up in the northwest, which is near the boundaries of countries, and just seeing everything that they do. They, we don't spend much time in Seattle, but just being able to not spend all this time in New York was amazing at the same time 
Yeah, I quite liked that little Seattle side plot. Like, you know, it's how people would typically imagine Seattle. It's like windy and rainy. But uh, when he goes to a coffee shop, like I could tell that they tried making the coffee shop look like the one from Frasier, which, you know, that show takes place in Seattle. And so during that, I kind of felt at home during that particular scene like it just felt very cozy like you know he's just sitting down and drinking coffee and it's like all you need is the live studio audience and it's like Frasier vibes yeah I I didn't make those Frasier connections uh I kind of forgot that Frasier happened in Seattle you know that Paramount are planning on like doing a Frasier revival of some sort oh I I didn't know that I wondered how it will do yeah, apparently it's going to be on Paramount Plus at some point. I have no idea how they're going to do it. If I were in charge of it, I would just not make it a sitcom and make it full-on surrealism. Like, Frasier is some supernatural psychiatrist who can go into people's minds and help fix their problems. But uh, I'm just wild like that. I know that's not what the show's going to be, probably. Um, but it should be interesting, I guess. Like, I'll check it out. And who knows, maybe since iCarly takes place in Seattle, they could finally do a crossover. I don't know. That would be an amazing crossover. Get the uh, radio host to guest on the... Have, like, the old radio host with, like, the new podcaster. And have, like, the comparisons. Yeah, it would make sense, like, having... like, Like, they're both kind of, like, popular personality like talk personalities so i'm sure someone could come up with a plot for like why they would broadcast together so i'd be down for it even on the off chance that it might be too goofy it just would be totally worth it i think i'd watch it yeah (laughs) but yeah getting back to mib declassified what do you think of how the rest of this movie played out i was always waiting to see what like the big issue that would arise that they have to overcome you know in every movie there's always the villain or just whatever it is and so this whole time i was sitting there waiting and then i i I don't know like the way that they bring about what it is i'm not sure if i liked it i'm still debating on if i did or not but what did you think about it they revealed that there was this alien that's very it kind of looks like it's made of spaghetti and it talks about how it was there behind the scenes watching the men in black organization form and uh we get like some quick flashbacks to like it's like hiding under a desk or like inside of a closet or whatever and just watching how everything is transpiring sort of taking notes and stuff and trying to plan some sort of invasion and he confronts agent k and is like you are a sad shell of what you used to be and it's like this very heartbreaking moment you can tell that the statement hits him even if he's trying not to show it on his face because he's so used to putting up a poker face by this point but yeah it's a really odd choice and it kind of felt like it came out of left field really 
but then you know with it being the spaghetti monster i guess you could say it well i guess spaghetti alien it yeah does kind of add to the credibility of you know the common folklore of the spaghetti monster i guess you could say yeah. that you know people see discussed in reddit forums and all that so it's kind of like a nice little oh yeah we're going to include these pop culture references that not everyone's going to get but everyone's still going to enjoy right yeah it, like the spaghetti alien is is so weird like it has like it even has like instead of eyeballs they look like meatballs that you can s somehow see through and it's like i don't know if this is what he's actually made of or if it's like he's taken spaghetti and like used it as his form or whatever they're not really clear on it but just the overall design is kind of bizarre but yeah i'm not really sure how he stacks up as a threat compared to some of the other ones we've seen in other movies but of course we do know that Agent K and Agent O and company have to end up saving the day, which they do. You know, they are able to stop an invasion from destroying the Earth, basically, because, you know, it's men in black and that's what has to happen. Like, I, I guess I was more enjoying the not so much the save the world aspect of this story, but the how does how do these characters change uh type of story like i was more connected to like the human emotion aspect of it if that makes sense yeah i'm kind of feel the same way like it was one of the few movies uh that i wasn't wanting there to be like a major threat because i was just enjoying the uh, character exploration of how we get from point a to point b of you know character evolution essentially and so whenever they did finally introduce the spaghetti monster i was a little off foot i keep saying monster i'm sorry i know it's an alien but <laughs> but just like finally getting whenever they finally introduced that i was like oh okay so we're gonna have a big fight at the end and everything and even then it wasn't a big fight they ended up they they're like oh yeah we're i, I challenged you to a game and whoever wins wins and I thought that was a really interesting take on the big finale that they choose to do. Yeah, and the game that they end up playing is Monopoly, which many people get frustrated with. And so obviously Agent K knew this. And so they play this game and Agent K is very patient with it, but the spaghetti alien is very impatient with it uh, to the point where he doesn't want to finish a game and just flips the board and gives up and agent k says that on a technicality that means that you lose yeah and at that point i was expecting violence to break out but instead the spaghetti alien hey i said it right this time yeah the spaghetti <laughs> alien uh he actually you know he honors the agreement which i thought was very interesting i was not expecting that but i appreciated it yeah, I guess it's a custom with his people. Like, as much as they want to invade, they still have a code of honor of sorts. I thought that was a very creative, if strange, way to go about it. But it's definitely memorable, if anything. Like, I guess that's... At least it's memorable, like, in a not-so-bad way, I guess. It's kind of neutral for me. And I also quite like how... 
uh, toward the end of the movie. You know, we've gone through all this stuff that he deals with like uh, over these time periods and then he's driving around and is driving cautiously and not too fast, you know, and just some, it's just normal traffic. And then like out his window, he sees that Martha is like sitting on a bench and you can tell that he wishes that he could talk to her, but he knows that he can't. And so he has to like drive away. But yeah, what'd you think of that moment? I thought it was a beautiful moment because we, you know, throughout the whole movie, we see the growth of Agent K going from being Kevin to being Agent K. And it all kind of comes to fruition in this moment because you see him, he's driving the speed limit. He's not driving as reckless as he was before. You know, so you get to see him. He He's learned, he's grown. He stops and he looks over and you're like, oh, is this going to be the moment where he snaps and chooses... I'm done with this, which we know that's not the case because it's a prequel and we know he's still an agent. But it was just really nice to see, you know, him fully reaching the character that we know him has by that point. You know, he's a character who goes through all these different relationships with Martha and O and Lorena. And and, and I don't know if you feel this way as well, but to me, it kind of felt ambiguous uh, still that because they're not as specific about it, but it still feels ambiguous to me that Laura from MIB2, like whether or not that's his daughter, but I don't know. Like, what do you think of that subject? Yeah, um, that's actually a really good question because I know they don't explore the Lorana story too much. We really just get the retelling of that one scene and some of the fallout from it, but we don't see too much Lorana in this movie. But I've always felt at least that Laura was the offspring of Lord Lorana and agent K. And I, I would have liked a little bit more on that, but at the same time, I understand why they couldn't devote so much time to that story. Yeah, it kind of feels like they tacked that portion on. And it's honestly like, like it's one of the not so strong points for me. Like that's the one thing where it felt like they were trying to cram in everything when maybe they shouldn't have. But other than that, like I feel like they handled a lot of all this other stuff pretty well. So before we close out, was there anything else you want to say? Like, I don't know if there's like anything about the music or what. The post credit scene, which I felt was a- around that time frame, 2008, post credit scenes were not a very common thing to have. And so I always stick through all the way to the end anyways, just because I like to pay respect to the people that worked on the film. Right. And so getting to see this scene where uh, Agent O gets called in to the higher-up's office and they tell her, hey, you're being reassigned to another office. And she gets sent back to Seattle uh, to work in an office there, which I thought was a really nice way to explain why she was not in MIB 1 and 2. And then you know they tell her something along the lines of, we need you to spend a decade there training this new office. You know, we'll, we'll call you back when we can, but we really need someone of your expertise to help these new people, which I thought was just an amazing way of explaining that away, you know, tying up all loose ends, continuity, 
errors that people could call out. Yeah, because in 2008, like Iron Man also came out that year. And that sort of, like, even though we'd gotten movies with post-credit scenes before, like X-Men 3, for example, like Iron Man was what started, was what blew up the trend even further. And many superhero or like genre movies since then have had post-credit scenes. But whereas those would... Mo- for the most part be sequel bait this did feel like um it was more just to clarify continuity stuff which on one hand feels very neat and tidy but on the other hand it kind of feels like they sort of tacked that on like just because and maybe it didn't need to be there but it, in either case it's it's a harmless scene i guess and so, like, overall, how do you think this compares to other prequels, like, in general? Compared to other prequels, I feel like this one does a very good job. Um, I would put it up there with the Star Wars prequels, which I know there's plenty <laughs> of people out there that have their discourse about those films as well. Um, I personally am not one of those people. I appreciate the prequels for everything that they gave us in Star Wars. And so on the same tone, I really appreciate this movie for what it does with the Men in Black universe. And it fills in so many holes in, what was it, like an hour and 45 or something like that, or two hours, somewhere around there. And so the amount that they were able to give us in that time frame, I thought was just amazing. Yeah, for me, my favorite Star Wars prequels are Revenge of the Sith, Solo, and Rogue One. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but I'd put MIB Declassified up with those and uh, X-Men First Class as well. And maybe the 2009 Star Trek would be around there as well even though it's not technically a prequel since it's a new timeline but i I feel like people know what i mean um but yeah overall um i guess we could go into final thoughts and score out of 10 and you know have measurement for those scores so what are your final thoughts scored out of 10 and you know measurement for mib declassified so as soon as I heard that this movie was coming out, and I want to say it got announced whenever I was 15 or something like that, and then a couple years to make it and all that. Um, as soon as I heard about it, I was on board with this movie um, because I was one of those people that as I watch these movies, I'm immediately raising questions for, well, how come this works and how come that doesn't? And this movie explained it all, or most of it all perfectly. and then it met all those expectations as well. So I'm probably going to give it like nine out of 10 Queens off a chessboard. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm going to give it the same score because I really enjoyed this movie. It might be, it's really high up there for me in terms of men in black movies. Like, the third one is really high up there for me. Well, the third in that uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones series is high up for me. And so this one, having the stuff that sort of sets is the impetus for what happens in that movie, but also explains 
a lot of this backstory and for the most part not doing it in a way where it feels like just a checklist like they inject life into the checklist items for the most part uh, it's just like toward the end some of it feels kind of rushed and cobbled together which is hence why it's not a 10 so yeah i i give mib declassified nine out of ten spaghetti noodles so yeah i think that'll do it thanks for joining me again jesse where can people find you and question possible answer oh uh thanks again for having me it's been wonderful discussion as always uh so people can find question possible answer on facebook and instagram uh just Type in your search bar the same name, question possible answer. That's where you'll find our release schedule and uh, where you can add insight to where you would like to see in our episodes. Um, At the time of this release, I believe the episode that will be out at that time frame will be a Jurassic Park, The Lost World discussion with Zach Arnold from the Intergalactic Peace Coalition. You can find the podcast on Anchor and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. Nice. Yeah. And that's um, anchor.fm slash question dash possible dash answer. And I'll link it in the show notes as well as usual. But I like that you yeah. know, I like that you know the link to my podcast more than I do. I just know it's on <laughs> anchor.fm. Yeah. I, I mean, if in general, if if someone uploads a podcast on there, it's either their name with a dash between the names or it's their podcast name with the dash between each word like that's just how it works <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I know it's question possible answer i just never remember if there's dashes or not right <laughs> but yeah so that's all jesse's stuff and as for me uh people can follow me at steven schinder on instagram and twitter steven schinder storytelling on facebook you can find my uh, fantasy horror comedy novel, Lemons of McGrain, on Amazon. More info at stevenshinder.com. And the next book, Trespassing Through the Visages, I'm trying to get out by the end of this year. Um, it also has aliens, uh, funny enough. So, yeah, kind of sci-fi alien stuff, kind of similar to Men in Black, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and you can also... Uh, I recently guested on my friends uh, Dylan and Keon's podcast, Trust Your Doctor, a Doctor Who podcast. We talked about the audio uh, Doctor Who, The Spectre of Lanny and Moore. So that's an early Big Finish uh, audio from like the year 2000. It's like their ninth one, I think. It features the Sixth Doctor and The Brig, so... Yeah, a cool story for the most part. And you can also uh, email uh, Delayed Replay at delayedreplaypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on, I don't know, aliens or something. And you can also find me on Yes Shift, a podcast and vlog that I do with my dad. We talk about the progressive rock band Yes, as well as people who um, like past and former or current members. Um, We've had a few of them on our show and interviewed them. And we've also had a few other people who've like worked with the band or with members of the band. So yeah, go ahead and check that out. The audio is on Anchor and on various podcast platforms. And you can watch the video on 
Facebook whenever we go live there, or you can find the YouTube channel and I'll link those in the description and the show notes. And yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. I think the next episode will, uh, we'll be going back to talking about more current and recent movies from this universe, but I'm sure at some point down the line, we'll return to these uh, men in black movies that aren't in that other universe. But without further delay, have a good day.